You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, thank you, Todd, and the rest of the team for leading us in worship this morning. I am so delighted that you are here We believe that what this world needs is worship, is regularly and rightly responding to who God is, to what he has done, and who he has declared us to be. So I'm so thrilled about this morning because I don't know if all of you are aware, but Bethel actually exists as one church presently in three locations And we believe wholeheartedly that what this world needs is worship. And so it's been a delight to have Todd and this team join us here this morning. Matt and Megan McGill are at our South Campus. And it's wonderful to see God's people respond in God's spirit and sing God's truth. So I want to welcome you to worship. All that we do this morning is going to be in an effort prayerfully to continue to respond to who God is. My name is Eric Barton, and I'm the downtown campus pastor, and I'm delighted that you're here. We seriously believe that you are not here by accident. We believe that God has divinely directed your steps, that you would be here this morning, that you would be among God's people, in God's church, to hear by God's spirit from God's word. And when that happens, we really do believe that there is a transformative thing that occurs. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, or if this is your second or third time to come, We want to continue to issue a special word of welcome. We are so glad that you're here. We are thrilled and humbled that we get to be a part of what we believe God is doing in your life. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan for your life. We hope, we pray, we would love for it to be this church. But if it's not, we will do whatever we can to help you get connected to a local church somewhere. Because we believe that God's word tells us that the New Testament knows no unchurched Christian. That is your plan. That is God's plan for your life. We want to help you with that. So if you are visiting, you will look in the seat back pocket in front of you. You'll notice some 5 by 7 glossy cards. We invite you to take one of those to fill it out with your contact information. We want to help you get connected. That's a way for us to follow up. You can take that card and drop it in the plastic folder box between the exit doors on your way out. Or if you happen to have been born after the Reagan era and you don't want to write anything down, I understand that. I'm sensitive. I have heard you're crying in the wilderness. You can simply text your phone number to this phone number and we will follow back up with you and make sure that you are connected. We want to make sure that you have every opportunity to get involved and connected in this body of believers. Now, speaking of that, one more opportunity. This very Wednesday is our quarterly new members or potential members class. We call Discover Bethel. It's one of my very favorite things that we do all year long. It's where we get together at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. There is child care available. And we have dinner together from about 6 to 6.30. And then from 6.30 to 8.30, you get to hear from some of the staff and our volunteer ministry leaders tell you about what God is doing in our midst, how the church is organized, what we're all about, what we believe, and about all the governance issues of the church. And so it's a wonderful time to just sort of do a show and tell. It's a great time to get to hear from other folks who have come to the church, who have seen a ministry opportunity and a need, who have gotten involved, and who are now having significant impact and influence here in the center of the city. So if you've never come to a Discover Bethel, or if it's been many years since you've come to a Discover Bethel, you are cordially invited. But since we're having dinner, we need to know how many people are coming. 
And so after the service, if you've not come, we would love for you to sign up out in the foyer. There will be one of our elders hanging out out there. We would love to sign you up and know that you're coming and for you to be a part of what's going on there. Now, one more announcement that I need to make as a continuation of our worship is I need to talk with you about what's going on with our budget. Now, if you're visiting, you might think, oh, my gosh, budgets, oh, the church, oh, they're always talking about money and numbers. Well, we take this very seriously because we believe that God has given us resources to steward, and our reaction to and responsibility with those resources is in and of itself an act of worship. The month of November concludes our fiscal year for our budget cycle. So I need to let you as the church know what's going on. So it's my privilege and my responsibility to sort of let everyone know what's happening. So I've got about three slides I just want to walk through very quickly to let you know what's happening. This is 11 of the 12 months of our fiscal year. So this is really through October 31st of 2017. Thus far, we have an income of about $1.7 million, and that is up just a skosh from last year, about $25,000 more than last year, and that's wonderful. Praise God for that. At the same time, our expenses have grown to about $1.94 million, and that's up a little over $115K from last year. The reason for that is we've had a significant increase in attendance and membership and therefore ministries, and so it just costs more resources for us to do those things. So you can see there's a little bit of a gap there, but we have added 15 new giving households just in the last month. So that's wonderful. You've heard us about six weeks ago, and then about four weeks ago as well, talk about we had a deficit of about $500,000 between income and spending. Already, because of the generosity of this church, that has been halved. And so we're super thankful for that, for your generosity. 238000 of that uh, has been relieved with about one month to go. So we have 240000 uh, to, or about 238000 to go uh, with the month of November as yet to go. So let me kind of tell you what's next then. Next slide, please. Uh, we as a staff, if you can believe this, in May begin meeting together, planning together, and praying together, assembling our budgets of what we would love to see the Lord do through our ministry for the following fiscal year. We start that process in May. We submit all of that stuff in the month of August. It gets rolled up to individual campus pastors like me who then submit that stuff to the executive pastor. He then takes it to the senior pastor who submits it to the finance committee, who submits it to the trustee elders, and there was much rejoicing in the land when all that process is complete. It's not my favorite. It involves spreadsheets, which feels a little bit like dying to yours truly, but we're done with that. And so what the staff has collectively put together as a proposed budget of $2.16 million, which is an estimated 3.5% increase over this year's spending. So you can already see we've got some faith and some trust baked into our budget. We are budgeting generosity. We believe God has called Bethel to continue to be a church of influence and impact, and that requires generosity. What that means is our spending is down except for the interest that we are paying for our South Campus expansion, and also we've taken on some additional ministry space at our White House campus, and they will uh, add additional children's ministry space, and they will be adding a second worship service here pretty quickly because all three campuses, by God's grace, are growing. So the Finance Committee and the trustee elders have examined and they have approved that proposed budget. It is the lowest percentage we have spent on staff salaries in eight years. That's always sort of the metric. How much of what we spend goes to staff salaries? How much of it goes to other ministries? This is the lowest it's been on staff salaries uh, for eight years. 
And 14% of all of our income and receipts still goes to missions domestically and internationally. That's always been a core fabric of the DNA of our church is we want to be always outwardly focused as well. So 14% of everything that we do goes to outreach and to missions. And so the budget will be further reduced by 2017 deficit. Uh, and if there's still a delta, if there's still a gap at the end of this fiscal year, whatever that uh, difference is, we will take that out of the 2018 budget, and that will result in some personnel cuts. Now, I'm not saying that as a as a bayonet or as a threat. That's just simple math. It's simple numbers, and that's what we're wrestling through. And so we just need to com be completely transparent about that. Which leads me to the third and final slide, which is the question of, well, what do we need for you to do? Well, first of all is to pray, to pray that our church will be able, willing, and ready to meet the financial challenges and opportunities that we have before us. We're asking you to commit to regularly and diligently pray for wisdom for us as a staff, for the elders, as we steward the resources that God has given, that we would be um, mindful of all of the different opportunities and needs that are asking us for resources that the Spirit would work to lead us to become more generous, all of us, that we would continually grow into a more generous people, those people who are characterized as giving their lives away, and that God would give us eyes to see the ways that he can help us meet the financial needs that Bethel has. We say this all the time at this campus, that God would give us eyes to see the wreckage around us, and that we would have the resources and the means to respond to the wreckage around us. And so we're asking you to please give financially as an act of worship, not out of obligation or duty or simply because it's the right thing, but to give as an act of worship, either a one-time gift that would perhaps lead to a regularly scheduled giving uh, pattern that you have, or a special gift in this last fiscal month of our year, or perhaps even to give by check here in the brown box or online or with some appreciated stock. We're going to ask you to persistently pray about that. So I just wanted to disclose all that. If you have any questions about that, you're welcome to get in touch with me or with any of our staff. We would love to discuss that as openly and transparently as we can. But we are super excited and very eager in anticipating what God's going to do in us and through us at all three of our campuses in this coming fiscal year. So here's what I'm going to do. Since we're asking you to pray, we're going to pray right now, and then we're going to continue by opening God's Word and worshiping together. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and that you are sovereign. You not only own the cattle on a thousand hills, you own those hills too. So we confess, Father, that you are not in any way, shape, or form concerned nor threatened. There is no crisis in your throne room. And so we ask, God, that we would have wisdom to see the world through your eyes, that we would be a people who respond with generosity in the same way that you gave of yourself, you sent your son. You are the God of mission and outreach. And so we ask, God, that you would continue to work in our midst as we take on additional ministry opportunities, that we would have the resources to follow where you lead, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would have courage to follow where you're leading. And so, Father, we thank you for Bethel Bible Church and how you have resourced us thus far. We trust that you will continue to do so. And I pray for our time this morning, that you will ready our hearts, our minds, even our bodies, to hear from you. We ask that you would speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. 
May there be no distraction. May there be no sin that so easily entangles. May instead you move irresistibly by your spirit and speak to us through your word. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Eric is obviously not going to preach today. I don't know if you're aware of this. I think the Bible says something about if the holy man speaks of budget, he's richly unclean for five days. So he can't, he can't speak today. So. No, I'm kidding about that. I'm kidding about that. Um, my, name, my name is Greg, and um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here to get to, uh, to teach God's word uh, today. Eric asked me uh, if I would be willing to, and I, I'm always happy to do that. So it's a wonderful opportunity my wife and I, Myra in the back, and, and my daughter Lily and her husband Kerrigan in the back there. Um, this is kind of our, that's our back row, by the way. So w this is our service, too. So don't sit there, because those are our chairs. I just want to sort of make that known. That, uh, But we come here to, uh, to downtown, and, and we attend the 1030 service. So you're family to me. So good, good to be here. And I'm going to enjoy this a great deal. But... Uh, I know that budget items can be kind of weighty, but that's, that's family business, so, and it's, it's part of worship to get to participate in the finance of God's work. I, like Garrick, believe in the local church, um, that this, we are, we are the, the hands and the feet of Jesus on this earth, and it's expressed through the local church. I love this church, that this church teaches God's word, and um, at least when Eric teaches it, he teaches God's word. When... When I'm here, um, I like to talk about pink bunnies. So if we can put the we can put the first slide up, let's let's start with let's start with this. This is the Energizer Bunny. Obviously, we all know the Energizer Bunny. What do we know about the Energizer Bunny? He keeps going and going and going. Right? That's what we know about the Energizer Bunny. Let me do a quick quiz because this will be interesting. I didn't do this with the first hour because they scared me, but I'll do that with you. Um, Quick, quick quiz, multiple choice. The Energizer Bunny is the brand mascot for Rayovac, Duracell, EverReady, or Panasonic. How many of you say Rayovac? How many of you say Duracell? Some of you say Duracell. How many of you say EverReady? And how many of you say Panasonic? How many of you would not lift your hands for one of these stupid quizzes for any? The majority. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that some of you, we don't, we're not sure what battery the bunny is actually trying to sell. That's fascinating because this bunny has been the brand name for the EverReady battery company for 28 years now. And, uh, and we, we love the pink bunny. Uh, but we're not quite sure what he is. Actually, the, the, this bunny started as, uh, it was kind of a parody. Energi the EverReady company was responding to a Duracell commercial. So many of you raised your hand for Duracell because it's kind of interesting. Duracell, 27, 28 years ago, was advertising kids' toys, mechanical kids' toys. In all of their advertisements, they were using mechanical kids' toys to advertise their batteries. And then EverReady uh, kind of took offense to it because Duracell kept saying, our batteries last longer. And, and EverReady wanted to make the point that, no, our batteries last longer. So in response to one of the Duracell toy commercials, which oftentimes incorporated pink bunnies, 
<coughs> Everetti in, introduced the Energizer Bunny, and and so the the commercial started with these little mechanical toys, many of them pink bunnies doing snare drums. They're beating on snare drums, and they're starting to fall off one by one. And then everybody says, our battery's better, and, and our, on marches this pink bunny beating the bass drum. And then the tagline, because Energizer keeps going and going and going. That was the thing about the bunny. But isn't it interesting that, actually, there's there's probably statistics about this, but the Everetti probably wouldn't want you to know about it. Actually, in the early days of this brand mascot, Everetti probably sold more batteries for Duracell than they sold for their own company. Because people had already associated little mechanical toys with Duracell, not with Everetti. But this is the Everetti Energizer Bunny. Interesting to note. Again, this bunny, as we know, keeps going and going and going. And that's the great thing about this bunny. But wouldn't it be tragic if the result of all this many years and many millions of dollars in this ad campaign managed to sell pink bunnies and not batteries? Why? Because, because it's not about the bunny. It's about the battery. In our parable today that we're going to look at, we're going to look at the parable of the persistent widow, okay? The parable of the persistent widow. And I want you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 18. What we're going to find out about this persistent widow is like the bunny, she keeps going and going and going. Luke chapter 18. And we start in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither loved, uh, feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God, or care about men. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice that she won't, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On the earth. And so the persistent widow. As Admiral, again, as Admiral as it is about this widow, again, like the bunny that keeps going and going and going, it's not about the bunny. We have to keep that in mind about this widow. Uh, it's, it's her persistence that gets the title, right? The persistent widow. And so we think it's about that. But, but the reality is it's something deeper than that. It's not about the bunny, in, in essence. There's something deeper than this that we'll see as we dig into this thing. She keeps going and going and going, but, the, but we miss the point entirely if we believe that this is just some kind of inspirational story about persistence. Now, I'm rec I recognize the fact that in, in our times, uh, persistence seems to be kind of a, a hot issue. Um, I think there's a bestseller on the New York Times list right now called Grit. So we talk about persistence or grit or stick to or whatever the th other thesaurus words we can think about. 
this is, this, that's the surface of this story. It is a widow who is persistent, but there's something deeper that I think the Lord wants us to learn as we dig into this, which we'll see as we do. It's, about the, it's not about the persistence, but what is it about? Let's take a look. I'm going to start. Here's kind of our outline today. We're going to start with the uh, purpose of parables. We're going to review that um, again. I know that Eric has before, and we've talked about the per per parables reveal and conceal, but I want to give some background to that so we all have uh, kind of a context to work with when we talk about what are parables for. Then we'll talk specifically about this parable, and we'll talk about the characters involved and, and what's being utilized here and what it's teaching. And then finally, we'll try to make application. As we learn about what this parable teaches, there's something specific about us, something specific that this teaches you and I that we can apply to our lives. So those three things. So that's, that's our, that's our uh, agenda for today. So let's dig into that and see if we can manage to do that. I'm trying to be mindful of the fact my wife told me in, in the first service I was kind of just over here on this side of the stage. And I tend to wonder, but I was, I was just preaching to this side of the audience. So I apologize if I end up doing that. I'm not left-handed, but perhaps that side of the audience needed to hear. Maybe there were more sinners on that side. Maybe was, so don't take that as an indication. If I'm actually over here more often, it doesn't mean there are more sinners. Just I don't know what quirky thing that means. All right, so the purpose of parables, let's start with that. Christ taught in parables. What are the purpose of parables? We've said before that it, that it reveals and it conceals. It reveals simple truth. Parables are simple stories. Uh, they're not elaborate. They're not complex. They're not, they actually don't end up being great stories. They're simple enough for kids to understand, uh, but the, the story is not the point. They're, they're typically given to deliver a moral, okay? They, they deliver something spiritual. They deliver something that's being taught. But we said that they also are used to conceal, which is kind of interesting. The, as Christ taught in parables, and we'll see here eventually what Christ says about this, but he, as Christ taught in parables, that was something that was also being concealed. But I don't want you to take that as meaning there's some kind of cryptic message in the parables. That's not it. The message of the parables is usually very plain and very simple, the stories are not complex. They're very plain. They're very simple. They're very approachable. And so parables are used to, to speak and to teach a spiritual truth. They're usually taught to teach a spiritual truth about the kingdom. Okay, parables taught about the kingdom of heaven. Christ used them to teach about the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do we need to know about the kingdom of heaven? Christ is the king and he, and he offers the kingdom. So we need to see how that went down because in the New Testament, it's interesting to see the early part of the Gospels, what happened here. So back in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that a prophet would come and would prepare the way of the Lord. We know that the prophet that Isaiah spoke of was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came. He began to preach to prepare the way of the Lord. He was preparing the way for the king to come and establish his kingdom. As John began to preach, his message was very simple. John preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very simple. Christ came on the scene. John was, was, was the, uh, 
laying the, the groundwork for Christ. Christ came on the scene. Christ's message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ began to select disciples to send his disciples out to teach. The message didn't get any more elaborate. Christ instructed his disciples to teach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 12, verses 22 through 24, says, uh, uh, excuse me, that, that uh, oh no, that it's Matthew 10 that I'm looking at. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7, as Christ began to instruct his disciples, he said to them, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the early ministry of Christ and the disciples was exclusively for the nation of Israel. Christ went to the Jews to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what were the Jews waiting for at the time? The kingdom and a king. They were in subjection to the nation of Rome at this time. They hadn't had a, 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 they hadn't had a nation in m millennia. I don't know what that word means. Thousands of years, long time, since, since uh, Israel had a nation. And so they were eagerly anticipating that day when someone would come, the king would come, and would establish their nation. They were waiting for their Messiah. And they were waiting for Messiah to come and establish that nation. So Christ came, ministry of Christ and disciples, exclusively to the Jews to say, here it is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the part that they heard. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the part that they didn't hear. Repent. Right? The Jews heard the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message was good stuff. The repent part was difficult. And so after that preaching starts, it gets really interesting as you see, and actually you can trace this out through Matthew. I encourage you to kind of read through the beginning part of Matthew and look at what happens between Christ and the leaders of the nation of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, because it gets pretty ugly, and it starts to cycle downward, and there's lots of accusations and threats, and then you've got the, the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus, trying to put him in prison, eventually even trying to put him to death. Uh, there's lots of accusations and name-calling back and forth. At some point, Christ even tells the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. It gets really bad. It it comes to a point which actually builds up in the, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew uh, and is supported in other Gospels. It comes to a point where there's a breaking point, where, where something changes in Christ's teaching. The Pharisees do something very uh, nasty, um, and it changes the way Christ teaches. It actually introduces parables, and here's what it is. It says in Matthew chapter 12, so... Uh, Jesus is healing. He's preaching the kingdom. He's healing. The reason that he's healing is he's given evidence of the fact that he is the Messiah. Jews, some Jews are responding positively, but the, nation, the national response, the, the leaders of Israel are rejecting Christ. Here's where it comes to a head. It says, they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the king that we're waiting for? Now, if you're a Pharisee in that audience and you're watching this and you hear that response, you're threatened, right? Because you're thinking, now, we're the leaders of Israel, not him. 
And he's not the king we want because he keeps preaching that repentance part. So they feel that threat. Could this be the son of David, the people say? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. That's heavy duty. What they've done is in the presence of Christ, the, the physical embodiment of God in the flesh, they've looked at the works of Christ. They've seen the power of the Holy Spirit through him in healing someone, and, and they've attributed that work to Satan. That's bad stuff. And so we see in the next chapter something changes. Actually, in the teaching in Matthew 12, it talks about that unpardonable sin, which is, which is reckoning something, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, observing that and attributing that to Satan is, is an unpardonable sin. And so Jesus' teaching pivots. Something changes. When we get to Matthew chapter 13, the next chapter, Jesus starts to teach in parables. Now, that's interesting. Why would Jesus start to teach in parables? They do something really heinous, really bad, and then Jesus starts to teach in parables. What's that all about? Why does he teach in kids' stories? Because they had did something wrong. Well, if we, if we, if we look at it, and what we'll see is that, that parables noted something prophetically that, that we're going to see here in a second. So why do you teach in parables? I think this is the fourth slide. The disciples came and asked him, as he was teaching in Matthew chapter 13, his, his disciples come to him and they ask, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, and he doesn't say, well, I'm teaching them in parables because they're simple kid stories and I want to be a, an effective communicator. Because that's not Christ's response. Listen to what he says. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. So it wasn't about simple stories. It wasn't about being an effective communicator. It's this is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes a prophecy. Those, this is Isaiah, the prophet, who says, Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So what in the world is going on here? So what we find out is that this prophecy from Isaiah talked about this fact, and Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables. It's fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. By the way, you're probably familiar with this prophecy in Isaiah because we quote it all the time in church. We just don't quote this part of it, right? This is that passage in Isaiah that says, holy, 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 where you've got the cherubim and the seraphim and the, and the angels and the heavenly realms, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And we, we like to talk about that part of it, but this is the second half of that passage. So what's going on? So the parables reveal truth about the kingdom to those who are ready to receive it. And not only are they simple stories about faith, 
but they're only applicable to those whose hearts is ready to receive the truth. The other part is this, they conceal, they reveal and conceal, but again, not a cryptic message. It's not like there's hidden messages here. They conceal in this sense in that they, they serve as an indictment to those whose heart is calloused. They, they expose calloused hearts. Parables do two things then. They reveal a heart that is ready to receive truth, but they expose the callousness of other people's hearts. When Eric asked me if I would like to preach, oh, I, said, I said I'd love to. He gave me two parables to choose from. And uh, it immediately became apparent to me uh, which parable I should choose because one of them had an answer key. So being the good student that I am said, I will take the one with the answers, please. Notice that this parable, unlike others, this parable starts out with the explanation at the front. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So it was obvious to me that I could hardly screw this up. All I had to do was read the explanation. So if you get nothing out of this other than that, uh, then, then God's word is glorified, right? Always pray, don't give up. There. Um, the answer key was there for me. Now, here's the part about the fact that sometimes these parables indict others whose hearts is callous. Let me illustrate it this way. If you're a teacher in here, how many of you are teachers in here? Good. So, so, so some of you know this. Some of you teach junior high and above. Yeah. Okay, good. So I could tell by the, you know, the shell shock look. God bless you. So if you, so if you teach junior high and above, you know about that. Well, of course, all of us are students, so we, we know this, too. There are, there are certain assignments. I don't know if you had the math book that I had, but, but um, I don't know if they still do this, too. But math books used to have answers in the back. Remember that? Um, but they only had the, the odd number answers, right? And teachers who were wise would give you the even numbers, which I thought was very cruel. I didn't like that. But they, they give you the odd numbers. And, and you teachers know this as well. There are some students in the class that it doesn't matter how much you do for them, how much you try to teach them, how much you explain things and go over it. You could give them a test with the answers and let them study the answers, and they would still fail it. Now, what would cause someone to have the answers to a test and fail the test anyway. What could the, be the only explanation for that? It would have to be they just didn't care. They just didn't care to pass the test. You gave them everything they needed. You gave them the answers, and they still couldn't pass. It has to be because they just didn't care. Oh, well, I shouldn't probably identify this, but my, my oldest daughter, who's not here, lives in I won't even say where she where she lives because I I don't want to I don't want to uh, indict this. Uh, she's a school teacher, and the reason why I'm being so careful is because um, she, she teaches someplace, and where she teaches, the the district has a rule that no child can make less than a 50. So what that means is a student is given a test, they can come in that day, they can write their name on the test, not do anything, turn it in, and they get a 50. Now, why would, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess that's the application of no child left behind. I'm not exactly, 
not exactly sure what the, the thought of it is. I know there's a lot of pressure on teachers in schools to pass kids. I know that. But this seems like setting a kid up to fail to me by not letting them fail. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But what does it do? What does it teach the kid that we don't let them fail, that they don't have to do any work and we're not going to let them fail? What does that teach them? That teaches them that the system is going to save them. And so kids from an early age are being brought up to thought to think that, that I don't have to do anything, I don't have to work because it won't matter, the system's going to save me anyway. And so that's what we're underscoring in that. Now, that's similar to what the Jews were thinking. The Christ came, preached the kingdom to the Jews. They heard repent. They didn't like it. They didn't want to change. By the way, repentance doesn't mean change your behavior. The word itself means change your mind. What Christ was asking of the Jews was a mindset change. What had to change was that they were thinking that they could save themselves by their good works. And what Christ came to teach them was that you can't save yourself by the good, your good works. You don't have enough good works to make that work. You've got to have a Savior, and I am that Savior. So without that repentance, without that mindset change, they would not receive the Messiah, which is why repentance had to be there. But think of it from this standpoint, in that the Jews felt like they could not fail. They felt like entrance into the kingdom was secured for them because of the fact that they were Jews, because of the fact that they had Abraham as their father, that they could walk right into the kingdom. John the Baptist had some strong words about that when he came to prepare the way of the Lord, and he said, you say you have Abraham as your father, God can make these stones on the ground Abraham's children. And so... That set up early confrontation between the Pharisees and the scribes, between John the Baptist, between Jesus, between Jesus' disciples, and it just got uglier and uglier. But the Jews felt like they were saved because of their inheritance, because of their lineage from Abraham. Uh, John records something of the depths of the Jews' delusion. In John chapter 8, it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Check this out. Here's how they respond. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. Now, that's an interesting statement. If you're a Jew, you have no knowledge of your history, 400 years in slavery to Egypt. And in the time that they're saying this, they're in subjection to Rome. They haven't had a nation in many years. And they're saying, we've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Salvation does not come from works. Salvation does not come from lineage. Salvation comes from a right relationship with the son, with Jesus Christ. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand was a message to say you've got to, to turn your mindset away from thinking that you can save yourself or thinking that your history will be able to save yourself and turn to receiving salvation from the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's a background on why parables. Parables are much deeper than just simple stories that taught spiritual truths. There's a prophetic sense of why Jesus began to teach in parables. 
It did reveal simple truth. It does reveal simple truth, which we'll study today. But it also condemns the heart of heart. It conceals that spiritual truth to those who have a calloused heart to begin with. All right, so let's turn to the meaning of this parable. Let's turn to the meaning of the persistent widow. Now, my title in my Bible says the parable of the persistent widow. Some of you have other Bibles that may say something else. Do you, does anybody else have something different in terms of the title itself? Say, so turn to the right. I should have turned to the left. They'll talk to me over here. Anybody got anything different? Is it all the persistent widow? What is it? Justice for the faithful. So, you, so we get different titles. The, the persistent widow, justice for the faithful, uh, something about uh, the unrighteous judge. The titles aren't inspired, okay? The, the, the publisher of your Bible put the title there. It's not inspired. It's okay. I think the persistent widow, though, is actually that title kind of misleads us because it kind of makes us think that this, this parable uh, seems to be teaching us about persistence. Um, you know, the, what we've been taught since we were kids, that if you, if you try hard enough, you'll get what you're after. If you set a goal and believe and keep persevering, you'll get what you're after, right? Don't give up on your dreams, you'll get what you're after, that kind of thing, right? That, that's not what this is teaching. Now, there is persistence there, but we have to ask the question, where does that come from? And so we keep looking at it. It seems that this is teaching about persistence, but read on. Typically, parables are back-weighted. In other words, this is an unusual parable in that there's an explanation given at the front, but there's also an explanation given at the the end. Christ would many times teach the story, give the parable, tell the story, and then break out of it at, an, at the end of it to deliver the moral of the story. And so that's, that's what we see here as well. That's interesting because this parable like is unusual in that you get explanation at front, you get the parable in the middle, and then you get explanation at the end. You got kind of a, a parable taco, if you will. I've never actually heard that referred to as the taco parable, but henceforth it shall be known as the taco parable. So, so let's talk about this. So what is it that is at the back of this thing? Again, it's back-weighted. Jason uh, talked about the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard last week. That is, is back-weighted. It ends very simply with the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus breaks out of this story to deliver the moral. The parable that comes after the persistent widow is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collectors. He breaks out of it at the end and says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Breaks out of the story, delivers the moral. That's the case here as well. The story is about a persistent widow and an unrighteous judge. It's not hard. There's just two characters. <clears throat> and, and we'll see some of the comparisons as we get into that here in a second. But let me read it again. Jesus told a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That sounds good. The story is consistent with Luke's introduction there. In the certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Then the Lord breaks out to give the moral, listen to what the unjust judge says. Notice that he doesn't say, listen to what the widow says. 
He says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And it's interesting to note, there's really only one verse here that talks about the widow at all. It's mostly about the unjust judge because it becomes a comparison, which we'll see here in just a second. He goes on to say, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, uh, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And then an interesting ending as well, which seems to not even fit at all. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? <coughs> so as we wrap this thing together, we'll see that the beginning and the ending actually do complement one another. It actually is a taco, as we'll see as we look at this thing. Um, so here you have the characters. This is, I think, slide five, if you're not already on slide five. These are the contrasts that we can look at. So the parable is this, the widow, and why does Jesus choose a widow? Because in that context, in that culture, this widow has no means to support herself. She has no means to approach a judge. She doesn't bring an attorney. She has no one to plead her case for her. This widow is completely defenseless. And so, so the widow becomes this great character in the story. She has no possibility of getting justice. She, she uh, couldn't, couldn't do anything. And then, and then her only possibility is to approach this judge. And what do we know about this judge? This judge is a corrupt judge. He doesn't fear men. He doesn't fear God. And yet this is the only recourse for this widow who has no other means to gain justice is to approach this judge. Now, we don't know what, what this widow is appealing for, but apparently some injustice was done to her. And again, because of her state, there was no welfare society back then. Widows didn't get survivor benefits or anything like that. And this apparently this widow is by herself. She's got nothing. She's got no one. And all she can do is come to the judge, and yet she keeps coming and coming and coming and asking and asking and asking. And so this widow, with no possibility, really, of gaining justice, that she would have faith enough in a corrupt judge whom she had no relationship with, the fact that she would keep going and going and going and asking and asking and asking becomes something very convicting for us. At least it was convicting for me as I read this and I realized, oh, that widow is compared to me. And if this widow would keep coming and asking with no hope, who am I who has a relationship to a righteous judge to fail in asking and coming? What would cause someone to give up? Remember how this begins. We should always pray and not give up. The question is, what would cause someone to give up? And this is where we wrap that backside of the taco up. And so the end meets the beginning. And we see what Jesus says in Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Which is in question. It's a horrible way to end a story. <coughs> but it's as if that's in question. And so what Jesus is saying is, <clears throat> what would cause someone to give up? Lack of faith. At this point, it's questionable when I return whether there'll be anybody here who believes. As evidenced by the fact people stop praying. People stop asking and people give up. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. The basis of that becomes about faith. And so it is the parable of the persistent widow. <clears throat> but it's not 
about the bunny. It's about the battery, right? It's not about the persistence. It's not about digging deep down inside of yourself to find that willpower to go on. It's not about that. It's about the battery. What is the battery that energizes faith is the battery that energizes persistence. That's what we see in this. It's not about getting what we ask for. It's about trusting enough to keep asking. Even when we don't get it or we don't get it in the timeline that we agree with. Is that your faith? As I studied this, this became a real convicting thing. As I, as I, as I reckoned myself to this widow, as I saw what, what Christ was teaching and, and Luke was recording here, it became very convicting. Where is my faith? Do I give up? Am I so easy to give up in the things that I pray for? In the context of this, this widow is praying for justice. Do we pray for justice or do we just give up as we look around ourselves? Faith is the energizer as we see it. So the application, as we look at the, at the comparisons then, we see this defenseless widow is compared to the chosen in Christ, which we'll see here in a second. This widow is all by herself, has no one to advocate for her. We're different. We have been chosen by the king. We've been chosen by the righteous judge. We'll see that here in a second. The judge's action is based on exasperation. He gets tired of the widow coming to him. Again, this isn't teaching that you can wear God out or be such a nuisance in your prayer life that God will eventually give in and give you what you want. It's not about that. This judge does. Eventually, it says, actually in the Greek, that she was hitting him under the eye. She kept hitting him under the eye. And eventually it became, it's kind of a boxing term it was used. And eventually he gave in because it was such a nuisance. Was, he said, okay, give her what she wants. That was the basis of the judge's action. But God's actions are based on his character, which we'll see here in a second. And then the judge's timing, the judge gave in. Whenever he had had enough, that was his timing. God's timing is different. God's timing is based on his perfect plan. So that's the comparison. That's what the parable teaches. Let's apply it. So this is, this is what it looks like as we apply these things. Slide six then shows us this is the application. These are, these are the three energizers, if you will, to keep your faith going and going and going. Faith in God's character, faith in God's, I should have went faith in God's clock there. That would put another C there. Now I think of it, darn. Faith in God's character, faith in God's clock or calendar even, and then faith in God's choice. Those are the things that, we, that become the basis for this faith that keeps going and going and going. Let's take a look at those. Faith in God's character. Again, this God is contrasted with the unrighteous judge. He doesn't care about men, doesn't care about God. He only cares about himself. God, we are told, cares about us. We do not serve a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but we can approach boldly the throne of grace knowing that God cares. The king of the universe cares about me. That's the character of God. God is righteous. God is altogether trustworthy. God will bring about justice, it says, for his chosen ones who cry out. He will do that. We look around us and we see a lot of injustice in the world. There are things that go on that have just gone on over the past couple of weeks that we look at and we go, that just doesn't make sense. But we have to keep our focus on God. I know the church shootings in South Texas were awful 
I know that rocked all of us as we look at that and the effects of that. The focus has to be back on God. God is righteous. God will bring about justice. God did not blink. God will avenge. We've got to trust God and understand that God is righteous. It's about God's character, that we've got to trust him in that. That, that trusting God, even in the midst of impossible odds we see throughout Scripture, one of them that always keeps coming back to me is the, is the book of Job, where Job was able to trust God in, in light of horrible things that happened to Job. And, and, and Job's own wife, the, the embodiment of encouragement, says to him, curse God and die. And yet Job continues to trust God. And Job's statement is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Look, we don't understand an infinite God. We only understand what God allows us to understand, what God chooses to provide us. And that's enough. But I've got to trust that infinite God because he sees way beyond where I can see. So trust in God's character, number one. Number two, Trust in God's calendar. Trust in God's clock. Now this says that they will receive justice. It says his chosen ones, God brings about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. That quickly part is a tough one because there's a lot of justice I would like to see right now. That I would consider this quickly. Again, God's calendar is different than my calendar. God sees differently than I see. The preceding context in Luke chapter 17, we're told something about God's calendar as the disciples were asking uh, when the kingdom of God would come about. And in Jesus' reply, he talks about what it's going to look like when the kingdom of God comes, when, when he comes again. And he talks about the fact that it would be quickly... But what he meant was, when I come, my coming will be quick, like a, like a flash. I'll be here. And so we wait for that day, and we've been waiting for that day. But the message here is, it's about God's timing, not our timing. It will happen quickly in God's timing. It's on us to keep waiting and waiting and waiting. That's perseverance. That's based on faith. We've got to trust in God's timing. Hebrews says this. It talks about the men of faith who had gone before us. Many of them held on to that faith. It says in Hebrews 11, Faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Hebrews 11:13. All these people, talking about these people of faith, they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. That also talks about something of our mindset. Yes, we want justice quickly, and we want it now. But there are many who have gone before us who have held on to the faith, who did not receive these things, but they held on, kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And their faith is, is promoted here in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews. They were able to wait because they had that mindset that this is not their home. They're foreigners and strangers here, just like you and I are. Things are not right here. We recognize that fact. 
But the king is coming. The kingdom will be established and all things will be made right. You've got to trust in God's timing. There's a story told of, of Walt Disney. Walt Disney, um, unfortunately, uh, was not able to see Walt Disney World. He built Disneyland. He built this great motion picture thing before Disneyland. The money created this great theme park in California called Disneyland. And then Walt had a dream because he saw that Disneyland was, was small, and, and I think he, he saw where it was going to get crowded by a lot of different hotels and other things going on around Disney that he didn't like. So he had this dream, I'll buy a bunch of land in Florida, so much land that I can kind of create my own empire. And so he, so he had this vision to create this land called Disney World that would have multiple theme parks and, and, and monorails and, and transportation and Restaurants and hotels, the whole thing. It would all be uh, would all be Disney. It would all be the happiest place on earth. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Walt died four or five years before the grand opening of Disney World. And it was at that it was at the grand opening where, where Walt Disney's wife was attending, and, and someone leaned over to Walt's wife and said, "Isn't it a shame that Walt wasn't here to see this?" And she replied, "Oh, he did see it. That's why it's here." That's, that's vision that comes from faith. How is your faith? Faith in God's character, faith in God's calendar, and finally, faith in God's choice. It's interesting to note here in, in Luke 18, the word um, comes up and it says, will not, this is verse 7, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? That word is eklektos. That word is the elect. This is, we're not going to take time to, to deal with election or anything like that in this. It's just curious to note that this word occurs really one time. It actually, actually occurs twice in Luke, but once refers to Jesus Christ as the elect of God. This one refers to us. He uses election or the word elect one time, and it's in this parable. And why is he doing that? It is because it goes back to the idea of the contrast. If this widow, who had no one, had enough faith to keep coming and coming to an unrighteous judge, who are we as the elect of God, the very chosen one of God? Why do we fail? Why does our faith fail? Why do we stop praying? Why do we give up? That's what's being held up to here for us. And so as we look at this application, we have to understand that we, we trust God's character, we trust God's calendar, and we have to trust God's choice. I am the elect of God. I am God's child. If things don't seem to be working out, if God seems to be delaying in his promise to me, it doesn't mean that I'm not his kid anymore. That can never happen. Once I am God's, I am God's, I am sealed. And so I may not understand but I have to trust the fact that I am God's chosen and that God will not forsake me. It's put this way. Listen to all the blessings we get as being God's chosen. This is in Ephesians 1. You can, you can jot this down and look at it later. But in Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It is, it is a guaranteed deal. Our inheritance is secure. He chose you. You did not choose him. You're not saved because you came from a family of churchgoers. You're not saved by your good works. You're saved by this selection of God. God chose you to believe. It's not because you do good things. It's not because you can generate enough of that. There's not enough righteousness in this room that could get any one of us into heaven compared with the righteousness of God. It is because God chose us and placed the righteousness of Christ on us that we can be saved and we will enter that kingdom because of that. So it comes back to this. It goes back to those questions that we have. That final question that Jesus answers, asks is kind of haunting. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What is it that needs to keep this faith going? It is that, is that confident, it is that knowing, it is that trusting in God's character, in God's calendar, and in our choosing. We've got to have faith in that. Life is tough. Life doesn't make sense a lot of times. A lot of things going on around us. But as he started, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's very simple in terms of the takeaway today, isn't it? In light of all that, in light of what we know about ourselves, in light of what we know about God, can we keep praying and not give up? I encourage you to keep praying. Keep going and going and going. Keep praying and praying and praying. Where is God? Why doesn't he act? Keep praying, keep praying, and praying. Don't give up. Keep going and going and going. Trust God and keep going and going and going. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray the, the words of Ephesians as we close today and ask God, says this, I ask, Father, that you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. For above all rule and power and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And you placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head of everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.